Welcome to this episode of Plenty. I am so excited you're here and I'm so excited to introduce you to my guest. Her name is Arielle Lauren. We met here in Miami, actually on Instagram, as you do. And she is the founder of the only business funding mobile app, which is designed for women to access capital to help them grow to their first 100K. It's called a 100K Incubator. With over a decade of experience with her groundbreaking framework for helping startups access capital and grow and scale more quickly, Arielle has been featured on BET by the New York Stock Exchange, Forbes, and more. She got her master's at Harvard. She is brilliant, she's insightful, she is wise, and I am so excited for you to tune in. Enjoy. Welcome to Plenty. I'm your host, Kate Northrup, and together we are going on a journey to help you have an incredible relationship with money, time, and energy, and to have abundance on every possible level. Every week, we're going to dive in with experts and insights to help you unlock a life of plenty. Let's go fill our cups. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Okay. So something happened. I know you know the story, but something happened with you when that was a huge moment for me when you actually asked me to come be interviewed for a series you were doing around women and capital. And you said to me something along the lines of, why do you think women don't go after funding, like any sort of capital sourcing for themselves and, and, and why do women in general, and you can probably share the statistics on this, go for bootstrapping their businesses. And it was revelatory for me because as, uh, as a women entrepreneur, it had never occurred to me <laughs> to access capital other than using a little credit card debt here or there or a line of credit from time to time, you know, as needed. Um, and so thank you for opening my own eyes up to the land of women and capital in a way that it never occurred to me. And I want to ask you that question back, which is, why do you think so many women entrepreneurs go the bootstrapping route instead of accessing capital to accelerate the growth of their businesses? You know what? That's a fantastic question. Um, and I'm so glad that it had the impact that it did on you. Um, I think, honestly, it all goes back to programming. Um, and so. I feel like how we are programmed as entrepreneurs in general in this country, um, in the United States specifically, uh, is that there's the whole bootstrapping story, but it's an incomplete story, right? Um, and so oftentimes when people are looking in from the outside, they assume that an entrepreneur who is scaling uh, is literally just doing it with their revenue and their cash flow. But oftentimes there are other layers financially that play into being able to scale at a faster uh, pace. and so. It's capital, it's capital, it's getting the business loan, it's uh, potentially having investors, it's uh, also, yes, potentially using business credit cards. Um, and even before you get to the point where you're able to get capital for your business, a lot of people also use personal debt, you know, as well to be able to scale. And so when you don't know that that's what people are actually doing, you make the assumption that it's just a revenue thing and it makes it a lot harder. Uh, and a lot more frustrating uh, because you're dealing with incomplete information. And what happens to people emotionally when there's that gap between understanding what's actually happening behind the scenes and that the people scaling 
the fastest are accessing usually additional capital sources versus what it looks like in front of the scenes when you don't know, you know, back of the house and you think, well, there must be something wrong with me. So what's happening? What happens there for people? Can you unpack that a little bit? Well, yeah, you think you suck at entrepreneurship. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You're like, what's wrong with me? Like, I can't get my business to work. Um, And it's like, yeah, because you're dealing with an incomplete tool set, right? And so if you have a really beautiful idea, I'm not saying go take a $100,000 loan out on a brand new concept. What I am saying is that you might need 10,000, 20,000 to get started to test strategically, right? Um, And when you have that, uh, that first layer of capital to be able to actually test your idea, to see if it works, to see if you can make some money, Um, The insights that you get, the data that you end up getting, if you know what to look for, uh, ends up really being um, something that could potentially, you know, change your outlook and change your life uh, when it comes to your business. Mm. So before let's okay, so something that comes up with a lot of people in my community is I can't be trusted or I don't trust myself with large amounts of money. Maybe there's been past experience. Maybe there's some sort of ancestral trauma around it. Maybe they've just been told you're not good. I don't know. You know, there's a lot of things. How do you work with people or have in the past around feeling like even, even 10 to $20,000, which yes, in the grand scheme of funding is small, but for most people, ten to twenty thousand dollars, like just handing somebody a check, feels that feels like a lot of money. So, how do you work with people or recommend that folks move through that feeling of like I can't be trusted, and therefore I'm going to hold back because I'm afraid I'm going to blow it or fuck it up? Yeah. So, number one, you have to have a plan, right? And so, I think a lot of fear um, has the ability to expand. Uh, because you don't have a plan and you don't feel secure in what you're actually doing, right? Um, If you take the time to actually map out like, okay, this is my concept. This is what I'm looking to do. This is my target audience. This is specifically how I'm going to reach my target audience with this particular campaign. I'm going to run my campaign on these platforms. I'm going to be looking to run uh, ads and spend this amount of money, you know, on those ads to reach this target, you know, audience, right? I'm going to stop at this point if I don't see results, right? So if you have a plan that's actually very detailed in terms of testing your business concept, um, I think that definitely takes off a layer of the fear. So that's number one. Number two, um, it's okay if you fuck it up. Mm -hmm. It's just money. Mm -hmm. It's just money. Even if you blow the whole 20, you blow the whole 50, you blow the whole 100, it's okay. You can make more money, you know? And sure, will you be uncomfortable? It may even wreck your credit. It may do a lot of things, right? But at the end of the day, if you really think about it in a 20 to 50 year like bird's eye view, is it really gonna matter that for about a year or two, yeah, things were uncomfortable and it was fucked up? No, it, it, it just feels uh, not good in the moment. And I think that's the piece that we have to learn how to release, right? You're going to fuck it up. As an entrepreneur, that's part of the journey. If you don't wanna fuck things up, Maybe pick a different path career-wise in life. But in this career path, there will be very abundant years. There will be years that are kind of like, meh. And then there will be years to be like, ah, shit. (laughs) And those are all things that are just realities. Uh, And so I wish I could tell you that, oh, if you do your plan, step one, two, three, four, five, like you're never going to make a mistake 
you know, or have an uncomfortable situation with money. Um, that's not true. It's going to happen at some point. It may happen in the beginning. It may happen later. It may happen in the beginning and later. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, that's just part of it. That's just part of it. <laughs> so one time I was sitting in the audience of a big conference next to a friend of mine who was a very well-respected public person in my industry. And I happened to look down at my email and I got a notification that there was a PayPal transfer that had just been made from her business to my business because I was an affiliate of hers. So it was just like this funny moment. I was like, oh, hey, like your business just sent me money in this moment. And she goes, she goes, that's on a credit card right now. And she had gone through some personal changes in her life. And it was so sobering for me and so helpful for me to because at that time she was like further along in her career and I had all these stories mm. I was telling myself about what that meant and yet behind the scenes she just had told me that the affiliate payment that she had just sent me was on a credit card and I was like whoa so I'm curious what did you learn in your culture growing up around what was okay and what was not okay in terms of talking about money. Because one of the things I love about you is how straightforward you are talking about money. And I'm curious, is that hard earned or did you, were you just raised like that? So in my household, the programming was uh, to uh, go to school, go to the best schools uh, and uh, to get some sort of six figure corporate job. Um, that was the programming, right? And so entrepreneurship, while um, you know, both of my parents um, definitely have uh, had entrepreneurial ventures, that wasn't like their primary source of income. Okay. And so oftentimes it was presented, I would say particularly by my father, um, as very risky um, and not something to put all of your eggs in that particular basket. So um, a lot of my money work had to go around my programming that the only way I was going to be successful was if I got a corporate job. And so there were uh, many years, I'd say the majority of my 20s, I spent like really having to reprogram myself to like know what's possible. Um, so there were a lot of books, seminars, teachers, a lot of even just experimenting you know, with myself. Um, I even allowed myself, especially when I first graduated um, from undergrad, to like have frankly about two years where I didn't really have any sort of job, right? So I was just traveling and earning as I go. I think I was blogging at the time or you know whatever that was. And um, yeah, and I, I had to release my fear of what it meant to be broke. Mm. And once I did that mm. and I really was like, okay, like this is what it means to have a negative bank account and to still be able to eat. This is what it means to, um, only have a couple hundred dollars to get you through the month and you figure it out. This is, you know, like all those things, like when you just confront the fear, like confront it, it's okay. And then I was like, oh, I'm still alive. And in fact, I'm actually having a lot of fun. Wow, look at that. Um, it completely changed my relationship with money. And so when I did finally come back to the States and really started to build my business, go back to grad school, all of those things, I had already had that experience of what it meant uh, to, yeah, just not have a padded bank account. Now, I want to say this also with the layer, right? At the end of the day, my experiment is very different, you know, from someone who potentially, like, doesn't have any sort of uh, family security. 
at the end of the day, had I made a phone call, even though my bank account was at a certain point, they would have sent a ticket for me and brought me home. So I think that's very important, right? Because there's, there's levels to this, right? But I will say for myself, um, coming from a pretty upper middle class, you know, background, uh, yeah, I, I didn't, I knew that I just, it was more so just a mindset thing for me that I had to work through. Um, and once I worked through that, it definitely put me in position to be able to take bigger risk as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And to put money in its place as not the source. Right. Right. Not your source and not the thing to organize your entire life around. Um, a woman I know, Manisha Takor, I just read an article um, where she identified the difference between money problems and money worries. Mm. And I thought it was so insightful to identify that. She has a new book coming out called Money Zen. And um, what you're identifying is really a moment where you brought yourself into relationship with what actually was a money problem versus a money worry. And so often in our lives, we are, our behavior can be for decades clouded by money worries, meaning there's actually not a problem, but we're afraid about when a problem might exist, but you actually just went ahead and lived that problem in your own version, knowing the extra layers of support that were there. Um, but I find that for many people who are living in profound states of financial pressure and stress, they have money worries, not actual money problems. And so there's some liberation in what you did to just allow yourself to just be like, oh, that's what it is. And like, yeah, maybe it's like not how you want to live your entire life, <laughs> but you know, but it's not like the worst thing that's ever going to happen to you. Um, that's powerful. That's really powerful. Like, how did you even know that it was possible to reprogram yourself so that you might know that there's a possibility outside of a corporate six figure job as a goal or like as a financial possibility? To be honest, I really didn't know. Yeah. I was just following my promptings. So, uh -huh. uh, so what that looks like is that I'd say probably the last year that I was an undergrad, I just kept feeling this nudge to move to Brazil. It made no sense. I have no family there. I have no friends there. I did not speak Portuguese. I had never been to Brazil, but I just, it was one of those things. Like I have to move to Brazil. I have to move to Bahia. I need to be there. I don't know why I need to be there, but I need to be there. Um, I had studied abroad in college, so I was familiar with living outside of the country, but, um, but yeah, I really, I just had this, this urge that, and I knew that I needed to do it. And so I quit my job that I had just gotten, you know, out of uh, college. And I told everyone I was moving to Brazil. At the time, I didn't actually even know how I was moving to Brazil. Um, I didn't have the money really. I think I had like the security deposit that came back from, <laughs> from my, my apartment in New York. Uh -huh. And then I had my last paycheck from my job, but that's, wasn't doing anything. I think at the time I was making maybe $40,000 per year. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and then I just started telling people and I think I, in college, I had read The Alchemist, mm. and so I knew that there was something about like really stating my intentions, um, deepening my belief, and just moving with the momentum. And as I started to do that and telling people I was moving to Brazil without even having a plane ticket or a place to stay, um, things opened up. You know, um, one of my family members said, "Hey, I have a whole bunch of points. You know, on an airline, like I would love to gift you these points and get your ticket." Wow. Awesome, perfect. 
And then, you know, I ended up finding a place to stay, you know, as well that, funny enough, was me finding a Craigslist ad, right, for an artist in residence program in Brazil. And I'm sure if my parents knew that, they would have been like, <laughs> what? But I did. And I got on Skype with the woman and she seemed cool. I liked her energy. And then I found out like through a mutual friend as well at, at NYU that there was also some other friends of hers that were down there. So I was like, all right, well, worst case scenario, if this lady is not it, you know, then I have some other friends of friends that I might be able to hook up with. Uh, and But it was honestly because I, I had already started the process of moving towards it. So to loop it back into your question about the reprogramming, really it was just taking the leap, mm-hmm. taking the leap to kind of get out of, I guess what we would call like the matrix, right? You know, and yeah. to have that space yes. to myself to be able to just think, because I couldn't think in New York. Mm-hmm. And so once I got to Brazil, then it was like, okay, you are out of the rat race. What do you want to do? And that's when everything opened up. And that's when I had frankly, a lot of time during the day to read, to study, uh, and to reprogram myself. But it wasn't like, honestly, I just needed to stop the noise. Um, and once I stopped the noise, that's when I had the space to actually think through what was next. So before we started the interview, we were talking about how you skipped a year in college. Um, and I just want to ask some questions so that people understand the, the matrix that you were in, just knowing that we're all in different matrices. <laughs> Right, there's some collective ones, but there's different layers for different ones of us. So can you tell me, like, at that time when you left your your first job in New York and went to Brazil and, like, popped yourself out, um, how many years would you say you had been deep in sort of that academic, you know, more... How would you... I'll I'll have you describe it, because I don't want to put my words on you, but, like, describe that matrix that you were part of? Yes. So I would say five to seven years. Okay. Um, so when I got to high school, um, I came from a household, um, and I'll even narrow that in. Um, in particular, my father had very high expectations in terms of um, what my academic career was going to look like. And so, um, and I'm grateful for that. It, there's definitely uh, benefits that came out of, you know, that standard that was set. However, it led to burnout in five to seven years. So seven if we're counting the entirety of high school, but it got more intense as high school progressed and then I got into college. So I was in all honors, AP track, everything. Extremely intense workload. Um, Two years into that, on top of being in honors and AP classes, I also started taking classes at a community college um, so that I could uh, basically graduate school in three years, save some money, you know, but also it's an accomplishment, something you can put on a resume, right? Um, And so my junior and senior year of high school, I was not only in honors track, AP track, high school, but then at night I was going to community college. And during my summers, I was also going to community college. So do that for two years. Then (laughs) go to college for three years. Um, And I did walk in um, with enough credits to be a sophomore between community college and AP credits. And so when I got to college, frankly, I was already burnt out, but I truthfully found um, NYU to be uh, a lot easier than my high school career because it was so intense. (laughs) It was so intense. Um, And so, or rather, I was definitely prepared. Let me put it Uh that way. Um, And so being at NYU, um, I was still in that cycle of feeling like I had to do the most, though. And so instead of just being like, okay, I'm going to, you know, do a major and like kind of not coast, but just take a normal 
college experience. I'm like, you know what? Like, maybe I should go get an extra certificate at night, you know? And so I did, and I went, and I got a certificate in producing, right? Because wow. I wanted to learn film <laughs> on top of, you know, my regular liberal arts studies, right? Um, so, and I was interning and doing all the things that you usually do in New York. It was a lot. So five to seven years of kind of nonstop intensity, day and night, um, to then graduate and to start working immediately, I just, I was, I was like, this is not it. I wasn't happy. I, I was in New York and it should have felt like I made it and I had a, you know, apartment in the financial district with some roommates, but I was just like, I'm miserable and I don't want to be miserable. And I had, at least for a year, felt when I studied abroad and didn't actually have that same intensity of two programs at once, I felt what it was like to be at peace and to have a very different balanced lifestyle. And so I knew that leaving the country was next for me. Um, and that's when I was just, I was in that Brazil momentum and then I eventually left, so. How long after you got your first job out of school did you leave? Maybe 11 months. I think I lasted about a year. Okay, yeah. and then how long were you in Brazil before you came back? About a year, yeah, about a year. Then I came back, but then I shortly after moved to the Dominican Republic. So that was okay. like, I would say probably I was out of the country for maybe about two years off and on. Okay. Um, yes, and then moved back and really got into school and then, yeah. Okay, so then you went and got your MBA. Yeah. Okay, what happened between leaving the matrix and having all this time during the day to deprogram yourself and then deciding you were gonna go to Harvard? Like oh. you were like gonna go like right back in. So. <laughs> I'll be honest, that was actually my father again, Okay. because I didn't want to go to graduate school. Uh -huh. I, I had reached a point in my career um, where he, um, well, I would say where I was just like, I already went to NYU, like enough, like I'm, I'm done, like my resume looks great, like I don't need to go to graduate school. I felt that very deeply. Um, and he was just like, no, you should really go get your master's. And so actually what I ended up doing, I have a master's in management, I don't have an MBA. Uh -huh. And so he was like, there are hybrid programs at Harvard where you can go and study business, but you don't have to be there full time. Uh -huh. He's like, so I know that you are tired and you would like to not be fixed on a campus. So what about if you do a hybrid? Uh -huh. And so I did that, okay. did my hybrid program it took me about, because I did it part-time, I didn't do it full-time, it took uh -huh. me maybe about three years. Okay. And then I finished. Um, and I will say, looking back on it, I'm glad I did it. It ended up working out, but yeah, I definitely had, had real symptoms and experiences of burnout, for yeah. real, yeah. And then, okay, so I know I'm just like asking you your linear story, but I'm very curious about it. Yeah. <laughs> so so at, at what point, like what then transpired where you, became acquainted with this world of entrepreneurs and accessing capital. Obviously you were, you know, you were in a world learning about management, so that's connected. But I'm just curious, like what, what was the next step? You know, my introduction to business actually wasn't grad school. Um, my introduction to business uh, was in college, I interned for a marketing agency, a digital marketing agency. And so this was back in 2008 when like Twitter was kind of just launching. Yeah. Um, and there was this ad that was on Facebook uh, and they were like, hey, you want to get paid to be on Facebook all day? You know, are you a college student? You know, and so I went and I filled out the application and me and another um, super dope young woman were selected um, to be their first kind of digital marketing interns. And so I entered this world of like, oh, people are making money online whoa, like companies are paying 
like these young 20 something year old kids like to run marketing campaigns and they're getting paid a lot of money. Uh, and so it opened up a career possibility that I frankly didn't even know existed. And that was my, the beginning of my journey in terms of really studying social media and understanding what it was. And that's what my first job was in, you know, after, after school. And so um, building businesses on the internet and, and helping scale businesses on the internet, it started for me in a corporate sense. Um, however, it then transitioned into helping startups, you know, as well. But it all started in college. So I actually was in that space before I even got to grad school. Okay. Yeah. And you, so you and I started in the online world around the same time, yes. even though you were in college and I was doing whatever I was doing in New York. <laughs> I'm like realizing that you could be a blogger as a job. <laughs> yep. Which was amazing at the time. It was, it was like, it was, this feels pretend. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so I can send an email. I can like write a blog about what I'm interested in and send an email and put a link to this stuff and then I can make money. Yes. I mean, it was so mind blowing. Okay. So at, at, at what point did you first need to access capital for a venture and how did you go about it? You know, I'll actually say um, I started my marketing agency without any capital, kind of. You know, I, I definitely used some personal credit cards, so that does count for sure. But it wasn't this like conscious thing where I was like, okay, I'm going to take this credit card and I'm going to use this credit card to be able to launch my business. It was more so like, okay, I'm going to go into consulting full time. I have some bills and things and that I need to pay. So I'm going to use the credit card and the cash that I'm earning and we're just going to make it work. Yeah. Right. So that was, I would say my first informal use of capital. Um, I became a lot more strategic in terms of getting capital when I actually started 100K Incubator. So it was more so actually like my second business that I really got into that space. Um, and that was because I had to do a full build out of a platform and technology. Um, and I realized like I had built a pretty successful six figure marketing agency, but it didn't feel like I had enough to be able to really float building an entire platform um, and to transition into all the production needs that I needed to do to hire people, it just, it wasn't there. And so that's when I really, I would say, got into, okay, let me go after capital strategically and actually take it out under the business's name. Uh -huh. um, and so that's, I would say my first official, yeah. And when you did that, did you have the plan like you suggest yes. to people? Yes. How did you know how to do that? Um, because I had been consulting in the marketing space and because I had um, very well-rounded business training from going to grad school, and then also when you're working with startups, your job is never just your job. And so even though I was hired oftentimes in like a marketing and sales capacity, um, because I understood finance and numbers, I would oftentimes still be on that side of the business as well. And so I wasn't doing like accounting or anything like that, but the best marketers are the ones who understand money. You have to understand your spend, you have to understand your, your customer acquisition costs, like all of those things. And because I was so good at it, I understood like, hey, if you could just get me like $10,000, like I could blow this launch out of the water, uh -huh. you know? And so once you understood the power of capital because you understood the marketing machine, that's really, um, yeah, when, you, when you, you're able to strike gold. And so I had started doing that with clients before I'd even gotten to the point of starting my second business venture. And that's why um, 
yeah, it was really honestly that real life experience that, yeah. that taught me the industry. Yeah. So you you knew how to test, you knew how yes. to have a proven concept, yes. and you knew how to know the numbers to basically say like, if I input this over here, I'm gonna get this. Like exactly. I know that exactly. So you didn't have to have the thing of like, ah, what if I blow through, you know, this money? And also we know yeah. that that would be okay too, yes. because there is more where that came from. Exactly. <laughs> There's literally an unlimited amount of money out there because it is pretend. Okay, so so how did you go about getting access to capital to build out 100K Incubator? So I would say that um, in the beginning for us, it was actually payment processor loans, right? And so because we were running a lot of our, um, our agency payments, so my LLC was for my agency and then I built 100K Incubator as a product uh -huh. that was under that LLC. And so um, I was running my agency payments through PayPal, Stripe, you know, et cetera. And they made me a capital offer. And I was like, oh, cool. Oh, so I was I've like, never heard of this. I'm like, fantastic. I was like, so basically, um, if I uh, say yes to this loan, you'll take a percentage of my sales until the loan is paid back. Um, so I don't even have a monthly loan payment. Uh, there's obviously an interest fee that's attached to it. Fantastic. Um, but you'll give me basically an advance on my sales. And so it worked out really well. I used that capital to get the business started. Um, and then I learned about other like merchant cash advance, you know, companies. Again, um, there are many different types of funding that you can get. You can get into that, you know, at a certain point. But for like quick turnaround, fast money, oftentimes merchant cash advances, while their interest fees are definitely a lot higher than like if you go through a traditional bank or if you go through like the SBA and the government, um, it's it's fast money, you know, and I wanted to move fast. Yeah. And so I, di I didn't want to wait three months to get approved for an SBA loan. I wasn't really trying to do that. Um, and there are other documents that are required to even be able to do that. So if your taxes aren't showing a ton of profit, you know, et cetera, it's going to be hard to get approved for traditional like lines of credit and things of that nature. So, um, so yeah, so I used a lot of merchant cash advances. I used a lot of payment processor loans. Um, and then eventually um, I transitioned into using more so like business credit cards, business lines of credit and things of that nature. But I started payment processor loan, merchant cash advance, business credit card, then into business loan. Okay. So backing up, for some people this is going to be obvious, but <laughs> why would somebody who is running a business want to access more capital? I'm just to, going to ask the basic question. Yes, to grow, to grow faster, faster. That's the, I think that's the key. So I wanted to launch the platform and I wanted to be able to scale fast. I didn't want to have to do little by little, like, okay, you know, we're bringing this amount, so we'll take 10% of what we're earning and we'll reinvest it back into, you know, growth strategies. I knew, um, especially kind of being the expert in the field that I'm in, like I knew what I was doing. And so I just needed the capital. And so when you get to a point where you understand how your systems work and you understand how to get customers, it just becomes a, a money, a money problem. Yeah. That's it. Like just have to go get more money and right. so once you know how to get more money you just go get more money and that's what it is so yeah i love that okay so what are the different so if somebody is listening and they do have a good plan and they do know their industry and they do know that they have a tested product and they do want to grow faster what are their options for getting capital you already shared some of them from your own story but what else is there and like how do we know 
obviously you have an entire business around this. So like, you know, just share what we want to share. <laughs> but like what, where does somebody get started? What should they be? What, what are some of the questions they might be want to be asking themselves to determine which capital sources are the best for them? Yeah. So, um, I'll give you guys the blueprint. So at hundred K incubator, uh, we break funding down into three levels and it's based off of revenue, right? So if you're earning under $3,000 per month, and that could be zero, like if you're earning under $3,000 per month, um, we recommend uh, a couple of different types of capital, but they're mostly linked more so to your personal income. So you can probably get approved for a business credit card, you know, even if you're just starting out, you know, because they're also looking at your personal credit worthiness um, and they'll approve you based off of that for the most part, so long as you have some personal income to also back it up, right? Um, but you will be a guarantor on that card. So even though it might not fall under, like it might not show up on your uh, personal credit report, if something goes wrong, you will still be held liable. So you can usually get approved for business credit cards like that. Um, also, um, you can definitely go after a personal loan, which would be under your personal credit report. Um, again, that's based off of your personal income. Um, you can go after a home equity line of credit or a home equity loan, uh, which is gonna be using your home or a piece of real estate that you have as collateral. Great interest rates on that, but obviously you have to own a piece of property to make right. that happen. Um, or you could also do crowdfunding, you know, and that's reward-based, debt-based, equity-based, and that's like all the campaigns that you see where people are raising money for the different business ventures that they're part of. That's crowdfunding. So um, those are usually your options when you're earning under $3,000 per month. And I know a lot of people are like, well, you know, why does it have to be on my personal credit report for some of those options? Well, your business isn't making any money, so right. somebody has to guarantee that, right? Um, so usually you end up in some capacity being your first investor. It's just what it is. Okay, let's say you get past that $3,000 per month uh, kind of space. Uh, so then that's when you hit level two, and that's when really the world opens up. So that's when you can go after your business lines of credit, your business loans, uh, even the payment processor loans that I was just speaking about, whether that's, you know, depending on who your payment processor is, PayPal, Stripe, I think, uh, yeah, there, there are a bunch of them. Mm -hmm. So Square, um, they often have capital programs, right? But you have to be generating revenue through their payment processor for them to even offer that to you. Also, you can go after government back loans. So that can be with the SBA or um, CDFIs, uh, community development, financial institutions uh, that you know lend to small businesses, right? But again, you have to be able to show that you're a business and you're generating revenue. And usually that's required. It's not to say they don't do some startup approvals, but usually they like to see some sort of like, yeah, income that's already coming into your business for them to approve you, or you need to have a solid personal income to back up the loan. Okay, um, so yeah, so you have a lot more business-oriented options around that, and I'd even say like a lot of pitch competitions we talk about, um, a lot of people will be like, oh, but I can't just pitch if I have an idea. You can, but if someone comes in who has an actual functioning business, you have some pretty heavy competition, and so we always say like once you tip into that level two kind of threshold, um, things get a lot more open for you, right? Then that brings me to level three. And level three is like when you kind of hit that six-figure mark in your business, right? So you're earning at least $9,000 per month in your company. Okay, so that's usually when you can start looking at angel investors. You can start looking at, you know, just more of that investor equity-based world. And again, it doesn't mean that there aren't exceptions to the rule. There are some angel investors who are like, I just like your idea and I want to invest. Um, but oftentimes, most angel investors want to see some sort of traction, right? And so if you can show like, no, I'm on track to do at least six figures, you know, maybe I'm even far ahead of that, that's very interesting to them. 
So we always say that that level three is great when you're trying to get into that investor space because you have some proof of concept and you're showing that you're already on that six figure you know, process. So those are the three different levels of funding that we teach. Um, and if you can kind of figure out where you are in that, then you have a much stronger likelihood of getting approved for the capital that you need. Amazing. So let's say you're in, I, I feel like with, with uh, level one and level two, um, that feels pretty clear, but like, Level three, let's say, how would somebody find an angel investor? Yeah, you know what? Where are these people? There's there's no blueprint for that. Yeah. You know, um, a lot of it's relationships, right? And so you have to be around people who have um, a certain net worth. Um, it doesn't mean they have to be filthy rich. It's not that, but they have to have disposable income that they're looking to invest beyond what they're doing with, you know, maybe their 401ks, their IRAs, you know, their stock portfolios, et cetera. They're looking to take investments that might be quote unquote more risky, but also might generate a much larger you know, return. So you have to be in that circle. Um, there, are, I would say angel investors also are everywhere. You'd be surprised that maybe your aunt or uh, you know, uh, your grandparents, your parents, uh, your friends, you have no idea who's sitting on what oftentimes. And so um, I always say if, if you can package your business and present it and again have your numbers in order, et cetera, and explain like this is where I'm at, I've tested, you know, when I put a dollar in, I get three out, you know, here are here's proof of what I've been able to do. Um, those are things that angel investors love to see, you know, that like you have a concept, you've tested it, um, and you really just need capital to be able to scale. That's definitely something that would be of interest to them for sure. And what's the difference between like seed funding and angel investor and venture capital? Yes, that's a great question. So um, the venture capital world uh, works in kind of different levels. So you have pre-seed, seed, series A, B, C, and it can go okay. kind of up, right? Um, I won't get into like all the different levels, but what I will say is that angels tend to invest usually at the pre-seed and the seed level. So pre-seed is usually when you're just, you have an idea. That's it, no traction, no proof, nothing. It's very hard to get people to invest at pre-seed, but there are people who do it, so that's just something to know. For seed, uh, usually you have some sort of traction, so you either built some sort of user base, uh, you may have even started generating revenue, and so you have proof of concept, and so angels also like to invest at that space. Um, the venture folks, so venture capitalists, um, or, or venture funds rather, I think I'll put it that way, yeah. um, they particularly are looking for very high growth, uh, fast growth uh, companies, right? And so they want companies that are going to be making an exit probably in five to 10 years max. Um, they want to see like nine figure plus exits. Um, and so if you're not looking to grow your business at a super fast rate over five to 10 years and reach that level of revenue, uh, venture, the venture world is not gonna be for you. Um, and so it's a very kind of specific subset of businesses that the venture world is interesting is interested in versus the angel world is more flexible. So yeah. they might say like, actually, like, you know, this can be structured as a loan. And then like, you know, basically you pay me back the loan plus interest, you know, or if I do wanna like really angel invest from an equity standpoint, um, I just wanna be, bought out at this point, you know, like there's, you have a, the bottom line is you have a lot more flexibility with angels versus with the venture world. It's very exit fast growth yeah, oriented. It's like so a whole it's other paradigm. Right. Okay. So something I was sharing with you before that comes up in our community is kind of this feeling of like, why, like this world 
and this world in quotes, meaning like I don't even know what that is, but <laughs> this world of reaching beyond and getting to dream of scaling and growing bigger and, and being able to create something that's bigger than ourselves, right? Um, or just any kind of abundance. And that could be um, in terms of like a housing situation or an education scenario or you know an entrepreneurship dream. What comes up is this kind of core feeling of people like me don't get to have good things. And I'm wondering to what degree do you see that feeling or that belief holding people back, for, especially women, from going for it in terms of accessing funding? And have, has that ever happened with you? And, um, and then third, like, what do you do about it? Yeah, so I can't say that on a personal level, I ever had the like belief that I wasn't worthy of capital. How great. Yeah, I, that didn't. It's <laughs> so awesome. It, it just wasn't part of my programming. Yeah. Like totally. I was like, no, like, I was like I can get a loan. Why not? I can get a credit card. Why not? Like it's there was no barrier there for me. However, um, I've definitely worked with a lot of women that that barrier was there. And so I'll say that when I started 100K Incubator, um, the reason why it's even called 100K Incubator is because I was targeting women who were earning less than $100,000 in their businesses. I wanted to help them hit their first figure, figures. <laughs> yep. I wanted to help them hit their first six figures, um, you know, by getting capital and scaling faster than probably what they would be able to do if they just did it through revenue, right? Um, so when you're working with that particular demographic of women, uh, a lot of stuff comes up because they're very new in their businesses. They're in a very early stage in their businesses um, versus a lot of the private consulting work that I do is usually with entrepreneurs who are already in that multiple six figure, seven figure, eight figure kind of space. And they've already figured out what capital is. Right. So now it's just about, well, what type of capital do I need to go after and how do I do this more strategically to be able to scale a lot faster? So two different subsets. Um, However, what I'll say at the, at the end of the day is what we said earlier, it's just money, you know? And really it's about how fast do you wanna move? I don't think that worthiness should be attached to a loan or a credit card or a grant or an investment. It's just money. And I think at the end of the day, it comes down to speed and it comes down to ease, right? If you want to be in the hustle of bootstrapping and having to figure out like, okay, all right, you know, we're going to take this percentage and reinvest it back into the business and we're going to scale at this rate because we're only going to be working with our own cash flow, more power to you. Like, that's absolutely fine. There's some people that that's probably what's best for their nervous system. Mm. There are other people who are just like, I want to sit in more cushion. I would like to have access to more money than I quote unquote might need and I want to be able to move faster. And so if you know that that's you and you're open to having uh, more money to be able to build out your dream, you know, and to be able to test things and to scale concepts, then I would say go after the capital. Um, and, and that's really, at the end of the day, all of, all of what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. I love listening to you talk about this because I realized through knowing you, I would have identified myself as a bootstrapper. But then I realized, no, I used personal credit cards at the beginning. Uh, from time to time, we've had a line of credit that we've used just for extra cushion through hard times with Mike's illnesses or just 
babies, whatever, right? And um, so to realize that I too have been part of the, you know, of, of entrepreneurs accessing capital, I don't know, somehow really helpful mindset to really see the possibilities in that, that there's always more than where that came from, yeah. that there's always a way to get access to money if we need it. Um, and also I'm really glad that you brought up that it is related to our nervous system and what's gonna feel good is it, uh, and, and so I'm curious around the concept of debt. I run into in my work people who have been programmed that all debt is bad and dangerous and shameful. Mm. And so what are your thoughts on debt as a concept and um, how can we relate to debt, especially from a business perspective, um, so it can be utilized for us as opposed to feared? This is what I'll say about debt. It still goes back to your comfort level, right? There are some people where they're like, I don't want to owe anyone anything. And so if it is not uh, a structure or a setup where you're gifting me money through like a grant, um, I'm not interested. And that's fine. Like there's no shame in that. You're not doing entrepreneurship wrong. Like you can totally do that. And that's 100% fine. Um, and then there are other people who are like, no, like I, I could use some help. And the truth is that out of the three categories of capital, grants, uh, debt, and equity, debt is the easiest to get, you yeah. know? So it's like, it's a lot easier to get a business loan, credit card, you know, et cetera, than it is to usually get a grant because so many people want the free money or to even get an investor because usually there's just a higher level of vetting and criteria and alignment that needs to happen to be able to get an investor. So if we're talking about easy access to capital to get you more than what you may need, debt is going to be the pathway that's going to be the first door and the easiest door to walk through. And so when it comes to just the grapple with, I owe someone something, you know, or that being attached to some sort of shame, um, you know, I, I think I really see the business as the business and then I see me as me, right? The business is an entity in and of itself. Um, and there's a certain amount of capital that I know is required uh, to be able to push that vision forward, right? And so, um, this can kind of even get into some spiritual stuff, but at the end of the day, it's really not my business about how I get the capital to be able to push the vision forward. It's just my responsibility as the steward to push the vision forward. And so if it comes in the form of debt, if it comes in the form of an investment, if it comes in the form of a grant, if it comes in the form of revenue and profit, um, it's fine, you know? And I think it's like, so long as you are balanced and again, so long as you understand the numbers, it's not a big deal. Um, and, and I think that's the piece where it's like we attach our personal identities to the loan. The loan has nothing to do with your personal identity. You are who you are, regardless of any money. And so if you can get clear about that and really stand in your own power and know who you are, regardless of what's happening in your business or you know uh, what funding you're receiving or what funding type you're receiving, um, you're gonna be in a much healthier place. And that's really, I think, what the focus needs to be on. Mm. Okay, so as we wrap up here, I would like to know if you could go back in time and tell your, you know, let's say like 20, well, you probably graduated at 21, 
or maybe even 20. 20. Yeah. <laughs> so, to go tell your young ass self yes. something about like a piece of money wisdom that you could go back in time and deliver to your young self just going out into the world, making your own money really in fullness for the first time. What would you want to tell yourself? I would tell myself not to attach my identity to money. You are who you are. You are who you are. You're great because you are. And uh, there will be very abundant years. There will be years that are tighter. Uh, there will be years uh, where, yes, you're going to have a lot of debt you know, in the business. And there will be years where not so much. You know, uh, There will be years that are very cash abundant. There will be years that are not. But at the end of the day, you're still doing the work. You're still on the path that you were put here to be on. And so um, if you are committed to the path and you're committed to doing the work, then everything else that's happening around you in terms of the money is not really that important. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, it impacts your lifestyle, and those are all wonderful things, you know, but it really just all comes back to the vision and the work. And uh, the work that I do, that I've been privileged to do, I, it's something that I wouldn't trade for anything. And so bring on more capital. And that's what it is. Bring on more capital. Yeah. And finally, what does the word plenty make you think of? How does it make you feel? What does it mean to you? Mm. Plenty feels like more than enough. And it feels like uh, the undercurrent of my life. I always feel like in some capacity, there is more than enough. It's just about tapping into that undercurrent um, and just knowing how to access it. Mm. I love that, thank you. So if people wanna connect with you, find out more about your work, where should they go? Uh, so if you want to connect with me, I would say find me on Instagram at Arielle Lauren. Uh, if you want to learn more about 100K Incubator, you can go to 100kincubator.com. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty accessible, you know, so Instagram, slide in the DMs, LinkedIn, very easy. So, Amazing. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time today. Thanks for sharing your wisdom. Really You're welcome. appreciate you. Thank, thank you for you. having me. So thank you for tuning in to another episode of Plenty. All of the details, everything mentioned in the show, and also how to connect with Ariel is in the show notes. So make sure if this episode resonated with you, please share it with someone, like, subscribe, and we will see you for the next episode. Woohoo! You made it to the end of an episode of Plenty! Don't you feel expanded already? So if you liked this episode, go ahead and leave us a review. Subscribe to the podcast, text a friend, and let them know they need to listen in. That helps us spread the word so more people can experience Plenty together. And if you want to ease your path to creating wealth, I created a money breakthrough guide for you where I interviewed over 20 of my high-earning women friends, and I asked them what their biggest money breakthrough guide was, and the responses were so mind-blowing and helpful, I knew I needed to pass them along to you. This is the kind of thing that is often only shared behind closed doors, but now you can access it totally for free. So head over to katenorthrup.com forward slash breakthroughs and get the guide. Again, that's katenorthrup.com forward slash breakthroughs. And I'll see you next time for plenty.